0: Let me invite you to turn to the book of 1st Timothy on page 1177 of your Pew Bible, 1st Timothy chapter 1 verse page sorry 1177 in your Pew Bible as we continue our studies in this wonderful book. In our study so far, we have seen how Paul begins the letter as he usually does. With a meaningful greeting, a greeting that hints at what he wants to talk about in the rest of the letter. And so you'll see as you look down at your Bible that the letter begins Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Right at the start, Paul establishes two vital points that will guide our series of sermons. First, Paul is an apostle. He is writing in that authority. But what does that mean? In the New Testament, an apostle is an elder. They call themselves elders, actually, in scripture. But within that general designation of elder, that general term, they had a unique and never-to-be-repeated role. Christ had called them to lay the foundation of the church's faith. Jesus had promised to build his church, and he had promised to use the apostles to do this. And you can see that today, can't you? What we believe today is based on the teaching of the apostles. Jesus, I think very intentionally, chose not to write a single book of your Bible during his time on earth. Instead, Jesus sent his spirit into the apostles to make the writing of the New Testament possible. The spirit, as Jesus promised them, led them into all truth. So apostles were elders, men with authority in the church, who had been ordained directly by the risen Jesus. The apostles were eyewitnesses, of the resurrection, and received their ordination and calling directly from Christ. Whereas elders like myself are called to build faithfully on a foundation, the apostles were elders called to make the foundation, to lay it. To do this, they were blessed with unusual, miraculous power and authority. In 1 Corinthians Paul warns, he warns men like me who would come and try and build on that foundation. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Timothy was a faithful builder. In the introduction of the book, Paul calls him his true heir or his true son. In Philippians 2, Paul says, I have no one like Timothy who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. You know, he says to the Philippians, you know his proven worth. Paul has sent his true heir to Ephesus to silence the false teachers there who are seeking to undermine the foundation. In verse 3, Paul commands Timothy to silence heterodoxy, that is false teaching. And throughout this letter, Paul will urge Timothy to guard the teaching and his own life. And ever since then, ever since then, these letters have been called the pastoral epistles. Pastors have always connected their calling to this man, to Timothy. Like him, we are not called to lay a new foundation, but rather to remain faithful to the testimony of Scripture, not just in our teaching, but in our living. However, this is a book for the whole congregation. Every time God gives a ministry opportunity at any level, as parents, as grandparents, Sunday school teachers, or even just in conversations with friends and neighbors, we are called to remain faithful to the foundation, not just in our views, but in our lives. Let's continue in that foundation now. I'll ask you to stand as we read from our foundation, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll read for context verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is God's word. This is the apostolic foundation. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing on it as we study it together. Father, we do come here to hear your word preached, and we ask that by your grace and through your Holy Spirit, the foundation would be built upon with gold and silver, that is with true preaching, and not with the stubble, the chaff of false teaching. We have not gathered to be entertained or to hear amusing stories, but rather to hear once again the apostolic word and to conform ourselves entirely to it. So send forth your spirit to guide me and send forth your spirit to open all of our hearts that we might receive your word as newborn babes and be changed by it. Father, we pray and ask that you would do these things for your glory and for our good, and we ask it in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The city of Ephesus was located on the western coast of Asia Minor, what we today call Turkey. But at that time, it was not populated by Turks. Rather, it was a melting pot of nations and the connection point between the east and the west. Ephesus was the Roman capital of the province and a city of great importance. Paul had spent almost three years in Ephesus, laying the foundations of this important church. The book of Acts tells us that his ministry in Ephesus was marked by an unusual, an unusual number of dramatic miracles. I think we can say that no church has ever had a better start And yet, and yet, the opposition to the gospel was fierce. Paul is forced to flee the city when riots break out in response to his ministry. Ephesus was dominated by a magnificent temple to Diana, the queen of heaven, and that temple was the major source of the city's income. And with people turning away from paganism through Paul's ministry, the city was deeply threatened. But that was not the biggest threat. As Paul himself predicted, the greatest threat to the church then and now would come from inside the church. Paul had already warned that false teaching would arise from within the eldership itself. Now Timothy, Paul's right hand, has been dispatched to confront this crisis. In verse 3, Paul urges Timothy to silence these elders. This would be no easy task for the young man. And so this letter was meant to strengthen him and as proof to the church that this young man was speaking and acting with apostolic authority. Last time we met, we noted, especially in verse 4, the nature of the heresy in Ephesus some of the elders had turned from clear scriptural teaching and had wandered away into the very popular area of myths and genealogies. This new teaching, verse 4, promoted speculation and not stewardship. In other words, instead of building on the clear teachings of the Old Testament and the gospel message, These elders were following the popular Jewish myths of the time. Instead of people learning to follow Christ, being changed, and living new lives of holiness, the people instead were wandering off. Some preachers back then and today, we noted, some preachers then and now are just painted fires. The painting may look incredibly lifelike, but there's no real heat no real warmth. When the lights go out, there's no light from a painted fire. On the other hand, good teaching reinforces the truths of Scripture and urges you to live for Christ in every way. As we will see today, good preaching, good ministry aims for the heart. It reaches through your mind and grabs your heart. And so in grabbing the heart, It grabs the strings of life, for it is the heart that controls our lives. That is what this wonderful verse, verse 5, is all about. In verse 5, Paul powerfully condenses the goal and target of true ministry and contrasts that work with the cold and useless ministry of the false elders. In this one verse, Paul pulls deeply from the ministry of Jesus as well as from other letters, and while doing so, he sets both the goal and the target of true Christian ministry, while at the same time exposing the hearts of the false teachers. They have gone astray in their hearts and their lives, and their theology now reflects their inward apostasy. So look with me this morning, mostly just at verse 5, at what is the goal of ministry, true gospel ministry, and what also is its end. So let's look together. First notice what the goal of true ministry is. And let me just say right at the start that this is true not just for pastors and elders, but also for deacons and for every Christian parent and really any Christian who is doing ministry in another's life. The goal of Christian ministry is love. Look again at verse 5. The aim of our charge, Paul says, in contrast, is love. Or verse 5, very literally, could be read this way. But the telos, the telos of our ministry, the telos of our exhortation, the end, the goal of our exhortation is agape is love. The first word of this verse is for some reason not in the ESV. The first word in Greek is the word instead or rather. I don't know why they left that out. And it needs to be there because first and foremost, it's very clear in the Greek. But second, it highlights something. It reminds us that verse 5 is the contrast. It's the alternative to verse 4. The false elders taught the details, the minutiae of the law of Moses. Their teaching led to speculation and not stewardship. People were talking theology, and they were going to church, but they were not growing. That is what Paul is after when he says, On the other hand, or rather, the end or telos of our exhortation is love. True gospel ministry has a goal, and the goal is love. But what is love in the Bible? What does that word mean to Jesus and to Paul? We really need to get this right. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage on love, Paul ends by saying, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Why did Paul say that to the Corinthians? And where did he get this as the goal of gospel ministry? to understand what paul views as the goal of gospel ministry you have to forget you have to forget what you think you know about love this is not love as defined in america since the 1960s in fact in just a few verses paul will condemn the modern american view of love jesus and paul were jewish rabbis and we have to understand love that way which is just to say that we need a biblical definition of love. To get there, let's start for a moment with Jesus. Jesus speaks of love on several occasions, but two really stand out. In Luke 10 and Matthew 22, Jesus is essentially asked about his reading of the Mosaic Law. How does Jesus understand the Old Testament or the Torah, the Old Law? Now remember, in the Bible, the law often means to the Jewish person the whole Old Testament, or at least the Torah, the first five books of Moses. So Jesus is being asked to sum up his reading of the law. His answer in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is to quote in all those places Deuteronomy chapter 6 that you just heard read by Elder Bahajan. And here's what that says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, Jesus says, greater than these. For a faithful Jew, more importantly for the Lord of glory, love is not primarily the desire to possess someone. There's nothing necessarily wrong in marriage with possession, but that is not Jesus, a bachelor. That is not his definition of love. Love for Jesus is about devotion to God and true devotion to the best interests of others. This is why Paul and Jesus can be our examples of love, and yet from what we can tell, they never had and never really did have any romantic interests. Because love has never been about the desire to possess, first and foremost, but rather devotion to God and to man. So Jesus as a rabbi, a rabbi, a teacher of the law, a title that, by the way, he claimed and accepted, Jesus as a rabbi, a true teacher and prophet of Moses, followed the scriptural teaching that united law and love. Well, how about Paul? Did Rabbi Paul follow Jesus' reading of the law? Listen to Romans 13, verse 8. Paul wrote, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Or listen to Galatians 5, 14. For the whole law, Paul writes, is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul follows right behind his Lord. Love is about the law of Moses being fulfilled in our lives with all our heart. Maybe the most important place to go on this topic is 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe your mind has already gone there several times. The Corinthian church was all about faith and miracles and gifts. That is the context. They had come to Christ, the people of Corinth, and since they lived in the apostolic age, God had showered on them immediately the gifts of tongues and of healing. These gifts were wonderful because, remember, they didn't have a completed New Testament. The gifts were meant to confirm for them the new message they were hearing for the first time about Jesus. But Paul was upset with them, angry with them even. They had gotten stuck in their growth. They remained enamored with these gifts. So 1 Corinthians 13 begins this way. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, But have not love, I am nothing. Paul goes on to condemn their worship services because they were built around, the services were built around displays of power and not edification. Or as Paul says here in verse 3, stewardship. Paul views the Corinthians as immature in their faith because they've not reached the goal because the goal is love. The goal or telos should have been the edification and change that comes with love. This was Paul's concern. And so he ends that section with this remarkable testimony of his own life. Paul writes, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind In order to instruct others, edify, build them up, than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is why some of you, some of us, have had bad experiences. We've known someone who was an incredible pulpit presence. They could lecture or teach on the Bible with incredible poise and accuracy. They have maybe even had that sort of power around them, a deep charisma. But then what happened? You got to know them, and sadly, in some cases, not all, but some, you found out that they were not loving people. And pretty quickly, you leave the church, you step back from that person. Why? Because they are hugely gifted, but their growth in Christ has stalled. They have not learned to practice the law of love in their lives. If you will excuse a sports analogy, They are like a baseball player who can hit lots of home runs, but he runs terribly and he can't play defense. The big bat, the home runs, cause the fans to go, wow. But then they are so undisciplined in their athleticism that their mistakes end up costing you a lot of games. And so the manager, this is the terminology, tries to hide them. For the rest of these pastorals, pastoral epistles, Paul will return again and again to this theme. Timothy is to walk in love and to teach love. That is the goal. The goal is not just blazingly insightful theological conversation or everyone behind doctrinally correct information. Those need to happen, but they're not the end, the goal. We do theology, we do theology that we might be changed. The man who listens each week to the sermon and returns home to despise his wife and fail to love his children should not believe for one moment that gospel ministry has reached its goal in his life. Next time, and you can see this a little bit in verses 8 through 11, next time we're going to get into how the false teachers interpreted the law. They wanted to be known, right, verse 7, they wanted to be known as interpreters, teachers of the law. But Paul says they don't know what they are talking about. Their reading of the law is wrong. Paul, following his master Jesus, has read the law and understood it now. The law is about love. And so the goal of ministry in the Old Testament and New Testament is that believers reach maturity. That is, that we learn true devotion to God and others. Writing a sermon is far easier than loving my family day in and day out. Writing a sermon is far easier easier than truly giving my heart to God. Do you see that? The goal is love. The goal of the law has always been to bring us into the presence of God where we learn true love, true devotion to him and to each other. It will not look like a fireworks display, at least most of the time, nor will it be speculative Rather, it will be a real fire, consuming you slowly, burning out the old you until you burn for him alone. The goal of true ministry, mine or yours, is love. Second of all, notice in verse five, that as the goal is love, that's the end, the target is the heart. The target is the heart. Look at verse five. But the aim of our charge or our exhortation or our ministry, you could put any of those words there, is love that comes from or that issues from or develops from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul here mentions three things, right? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to fully preach these three. We'd be here day and night. However, I think these three, taken together, they paint one picture. The picture is that this love, this obedience, must come from the heart. It must be sincere. To really get this, you have to place this into, again, the context of your Bible. The number one thing you can do to enrich your reading of the Bible today, as an American Christian especially, is to read the Old Testament more carefully. I say that here because what makes this verse pop and sizzle, if you put it that way, is if you know the prophets. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God had been sending prophets to the people of Israel, men like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Every one of these men, every one of them, has come with basically the same message. God wants your heart. Circumcise your heart. Jeremiah, to take just one example, is is literally, if you read the book of Jeremiah, he is yelling at the nation that they are whores. Not my words, his words, parents. Those are his words. In fact, he's far more graphic about it than I'll ever be in the pulpit. All through these sermons of Jeremiah and the other prophets, They're repeating this mantra, this message. God is not impressed with your outward conformity. He wants your heart. Jeremiah, again, just to give one example, warns them. Jeremiah says to them, stop saying to yourself, we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple. We are invincible. Stop, Jeremiah says, just stop making sacrifices because God actually has come to hate Your sacrifices, your outward religion makes him sick because he knows what's in your heart and in your lives. Jeremiah, even at the beginning of his his book, he predicts a day of glory when the temple will be destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant will be no more and no one will bother to rebuild any of these structures because he says in chapter 3 of his book they won't even really be important because their goal will have been achieved, real, heart-based obedience in love. Here's how Micah, another prophet, famously put it. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Shall I give my firstborn For my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now listen to Jesus, the final and greatest Jewish prophet, how he began his ministry. Matthew chapter 3, he said, And do not, to his audience, do not presume to say to yourselves, stop saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire. And again, what does he say to the woman at the well? Remember her? She wanted to have a debate. She wanted to have an intellectual debate about where the temple should be located. He says to her, the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. Nowhere does Jesus make this point more emphatically than in his greatest law interpretation, his greatest sermon on the law of Moses. Jesus went up on a mountain. That was no accident. He was consciously, knowingly reenacting the giving of the law through Moses, who also received the revelation on a mountain. And then Jesus on that mountain, the scriptures tell us, he opened his mouth and he said these words, Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who really and truly hunger after righteousness. And then verse after verse, he lays bare the outward conformity of the people who gave money, and they prayed out loud so that they could be heard. He condemned them for keeping the law outwardly and missing the target, ignoring the heart And so he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery where? In your heart. You've heard it said, don't murder. But Jesus says, in your heart, have you been angry with another? Then you've committed murder in your heart. Jesus was the last of his kind, the final and the greatest Old Testament prophet. And like all the greats of the Old Testament, His message was one of the heart. Like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he wept over Jerusalem. Like Isaiah, he said, these people honor me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. The heart has always been the true prophet's target. God wants your heart. Do you know that? God is a spirit, and those who are devoted to him must be devoted in the heart, in the place where we come face to face with God. In what may be the greatest sermon I've ever read by my favorite theologian, Gerhardus Voss, he wrote these words about Jesus' teaching of the law during the Sermon on the Mount. He writes this, Christ, he says, drives us back into the inner chambers of our consciousness, where God and we are alone and good and evil assume a proportion and a significance never dreamt of before. The law, the law in the hands of Jesus, becomes alive with God's own personality. Majestic and authoritative, he is present in every commandment, so absolute in his demands, so observant of our conduct, so intent upon the outcome. And the thought of giving him to, to him less than heart and soul and mind and strength is the product of our moral life ceases to be tolerable even to ourselves. There God, in the heart, with the law, besides requiring obedience to his will, is heard to ask conformity to his moral nature. The law is finally perceived to coincide, to be identical with What he is, to fulfill the law, becomes but another form of the imperative to be like unto God. It is God's inalienable right as God to impress his character upon us, to make and keep us reflectors of his infinite glory. But in a state of sin, this can only intensify a thousand times the consciousness of man's utter inability even to begin to realize what nevertheless is the very core or end or purpose of his life, the sole ultimate reason for his, our existence. Do you see? Verse 5 is completely prophetic, messianic, and biblical, a way of thinking about ministry, true prophetic Biblical ministry seeks to drive the person back into the deepest recesses of their heart and there, just there in your heart, who you are in your bed when you're alone, to ask just there, Who do I really love? Who will I serve? What do I really hunger for? And then and only then can we offer to God worship that is in spirit and in truth. For God is a spirit and is seeking real spiritual worship, not just outward conformity. And the prophets and Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul were sent with that message. And that is the message of this church by the grace of God. More personally, let me say to you today, you will never really love Jesus until your religion becomes one of love in the heart. It starts when you first get into touch with your sin, and the best way to know your sin is to know your own heart. There you will with me find many hungers and many thirstings. There you will see how far the stain goes and how deep the wound really is. And only then can you begin to fully appreciate the love of Christ that saves and the love of Christ that enters the heart and begins to knit the womb, the balm of Gilead. And so Jesus said to that thirsty woman, remember that thirsty woman who wanted to have a theological speculative discussion, he said to her, come drink from me and live. All good preaching, all good preaching, all good Sunday school classes, all good parenting, grandparenting, uncle and aunting, whatever that is, all of it, if you're doing Christian ministry in any form, It seeks to reach like a hand through the mind, stretching the mind to receive God's revelation. But good preaching always goes through the mind in order to get to the heart. With Jesus and all the prophets, biblical ministry is not satisfied till it has grabbed the heart and moved it to love for Jesus and all people. Now, is that the kind of ministry you are after? Are you just settling for outward conformity from yourself and your family? Do you stop talking to your kids when you've got their outward conformity, their obedience? Or is every conversation, every moment about heartfelt obedience in love to Jesus? This and this alone is true ministry. Therefore, May our aim here at Grace always be love from a pure and sincere heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that from this pulpit and in all the ministries of our church, our desire would always be to arrive at the end, which is maturity, and ascribed in the one wonderful word, love true biblical love. And may we always target the heart as the place where that must begin and flow forth into the rest of life. So Father, we pray that you bless every ministry of our church, every ministry we have as individuals and in our communities and our homes. Be especially with our mothers this morning. May they reach the hearts of their children and plant there the love for Christ and love for others. We pray, do all this in our midst, that Christ might be glorified and that we might have here a true ministry of the gospel. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.